doing as much research as you possibly can about resources that exist for blind students in your state or scholarships specifically for blind students because there really are a lot of great options to get scholarships. So they tell you, go to this website, fill out the application, write your questions and then submit your payments. I was able to reach out to the tour coordinator at the admissions office and make sure that I'm given more verbal descriptions. You just have to just stand up and advocate for yourself. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a GPS app. Not stressing out too much over denial is also very important because that's not your only option. There are many options for you to choose. I think one final point that I would like to make is don't settle. You should always apply to your, we call them your dream schools, your reach schools, whatever you kind of term them, and obviously apply to schools maybe that are local or that make more financial sense. I had a really unique experience considering I homeschooled in high school. <gasps> oh! Hey everyone, and welcome to the NABS Now podcast. I'm your host, Nina, and I'm here today with my awesome co-host, Sayoon, and we're going to dive into all things undergraduate applications. So let's get right to it. You're listening to the NABS Now podcast, brought to you by the National Association of Blind Students, a proud division of the National Federation of the Blind. I'm Cricket Beidelman. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a senior at Stanford University majoring in communications. Hi, I'm Lauren. I have she, her pronouns. I'm going to Collin College, and I'm majoring in computer science. Hi, I'm Logan Stenzel, he, him pronouns, and I am a freshman at the University of Minnesota, double majoring in computer science and finance. I never knew y'all were computer science majors until now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm not computer science. Give me some credit here. I know you're not, but I met um, Logan and Lauren. I forgot that they were both computer science. CS squared. The geeks. Should you disclose your blindness on a college application? I think that depends what section you're writing it in. If it plays well into your essay, then yeah, absolutely. I know that blindness has been a huge part of my identity. Um, I got a guide dog way back when. And I also have a tendency to make lots of blind jokes to help people feel comfortable with me. So if that were something that I wanted to disclose on a college application, then yes, I would definitely mention it. Yeah, I agree. And actually, the way we do our applications here is that you don't actually disclose your disability until your essay. There's really no space to disclose your disability. So unless you want to do it in the essay, that's up to you. Yeah, I think doing it in the essay provides a really good spot because the essay is showcasing who you are and kind of getting like familiarizing yourself to the admissions officers. So if you can tie it into other aspects of your life and how it's impacted your life, then that can be a really great positive way to disclose it. The other thing with that is that if blindness is not a huge part of your identity, say you don't really have much of a visual disability, then there's not necessarily a reason to. I just choose to because it's a large part of who I am and how I deal with things. So it's really a personal thing. There's not a need to mention it. Yeah, definitely. So speaking of essays, where did you find inspiration for your essay? So for me, it was really a holistic process of before I even started the application process, I listed everything that I thought was relevant about myself. And then I looked at all of the fields and questions that I was supposed to answer. And then all of the big things that I really wanted to cover, I tried to focus in on those on my essay. 
So I think for me, there were a lot of short answer questions and things on the various applications that I did. And the UC application was, I think, one that had four-ish essay questions. And then there was the big essay. Stanford, one of the short answer questions was, what matters to you and why? And that was a short answer question. So I'm still a little confused about that. For my big essay, I just started thinking about aspects of my identity. And I started thinking about what I wanted to do in the future at the time. At the time, I was thinking about going into law school. That is not happening. But at the time, I was thinking about the kinds of changes that I wanted to make in society and the kinds of pieces of my identity that I really wanted the admissions officers to know about. Because I thought that even if I didn't get into school, I thought that maybe they could find this to be a fulfilling learning experience when it came to figuring out who another unique person was. Yeah, for me, they actually gave me specific prompts to cover. And you could pick one or the other based off of what kind of student you were. And so for me, it was very straightforward. They gave me a prompt. I answered it. But for me, it was kind of difficult to figure out, you know, what I wanted to include and, and what I guess how much of myself that I wanted to disclose, because some of them were actually quite personal. But it was it was pretty straightforward. I think one note I'd like to throw in about the way I constructed my essay is I tried to pick like an overarching theme, um, which was my participation in high school debate. But then throughout that theme, I kind of tied that to like personality traits and other projects that I had worked on to kind of showcase multiple aspects and multiple dimensions of myself in one one piece of writing. Yeah. Really like that strategy. While we were in the topic of college essay process and really just filling out forms in general, did you, how was your process like in terms of application? Did you go straight to the website? Or did you use common application? Because I know that's really two ways of going about doing that. I know two or three ways that many people know how to do that. You go either straight to your institution's page, fill that out, or use common app and click send all of it in terms of accessibility on both sides. For my state, all of the state colleges are through common applications. There's not actually a specific application for each institution. So they tell you, go to this website, fill out the application, and then you can actually just copy and paste the applications for each university. And they all have their quirks, their different questions that they ask, but typically the applications are actually the same. Now, as far as private colleges, that might be a little bit different. Yeah, so private colleges, speaking of which, a lot of them use the common application and it's kind of, it's easier because you can just write your questions and then submit your payments all in one avenue. I think that I found that to be a fairly accessible website. There were a couple of things that I had a little tiny issues with, but I was able to ask my parents for help on those. The University of California website also has their sort of common app, but for the UC schools. So I just filled out all the stuff and the essay questions were all the same. So that helped. And then you could pick which schools you want to send the application to. So I sent mine to UC Santa Cruz and then Berkeley. And actually, Surprise, surprise. I was waitlisted to Berkeley, and then I ended up at their rival school. So take that, Berkeley. I think a lot of state schools especially are trying to transition, if they haven't already, to like their own sort of common application because it just makes things a lot easier. So one thing I would like to bring up, no matter which application you're using, oftentimes there will be a list of questions and they let you type it in right on the website. But I would really recommend actually copying and pasting the questions onto an offline Word document and typing out your answers there. That way, in case there's a glitch on the website or something like that, then you have it backed up somewhere else. 
that was never really an option for me because it was just one application that you filled out in the website and for some reason it wouldn't let you copy and paste it from the actual application yeah you so, had to do it within the app yeah that's so i think that most well done thorough college applications should let you save intermittently and if that's the case then you can fill out all the demographic information that you know by heart on you know the first day that the application comes out and then even if you can't copy and paste the questions i typed out all the questions in a separate document anyway and it was painful it was kind of horrible but it was something that i needed to do so that i could keep the essays separate and actually my ap literature teacher said that she would be willing to read through all of our college application questions so i did that and my parents looked at my application when it was done and all ready to send and my mom didn't approve of my application questions and she wouldn't let me submit it until she had dictated all the answers and made me type them from her point of view. So I did that because she was the one paying the money and I didn't have a credit card at that point. But afterward, I submitted my essays to, I think this was a Stanford application. And I told them, I don't know which ones you're going to use, but here's mine. And those other ones are from my mom. So it's up to you, but I just wanted to be ethical about this. So it's definitely good. I don't think most people go through that, but it's definitely good to have your essays in a separate folder. During the application process, did you reach out to the disability service department at your prospective school? And do you recommend that students do that? I personally did not reach out to my dis the disability service while I was applying because if you get accepted to that college, schools are required to make that experience for you accessible. And since I didn't have any issues with the actual application process, I didn't find it necessary, but I would 100% recommend reaching out as soon as you kind of have an idea of a couple of colleges that you're looking for and then that way you have a good idea of which colleges are going to be able to accommodate you best. Yeah, it's really interesting because at all the universities that I applied to, they told me that I was not to contact them until I had my application. But if you have the ability to contact them as you're applying, it's definitely a good idea because you want to get a good jump on all the documentation and getting set up for your accommodations. So I'm actually going to disagree with you, Lauren, because I think that one thing that colleges are capable of doing is communicating between their offices. And if an admissions office wants to know more about someone who is a prospective applicant, then they could just reach out to the disabilities office and say, hey, what do you know about this person? And let's say that maybe you had a little bit of a conflict with the disabilities office because they didn't understand what your accessibility needs were, then the disabilities office might say, well, we had a disagreement and they just weren't very polite to us or something like that. And that may or may not be the truth, depending on the situation. But I think the other thing is, if there's a common application and not one that's extremely specific to the school, there's not much of a necessity to reach out. And if you have accessibility issues, then it would be better to talk to the person who developed the application. Of course, finding that can be a little difficult. I see your point. Have you relied on any resources that you were provided at your high school or any other resources online to help with college applications in any way? Were they useful or not really? No to all of it. So for me, this is not a very formal resource, but A, I found it entertaining, but B, it was also maybe a little reassuring. I kind of watched a lot of YouTube videos about the college applications, and it was just interesting to hear different perspectives on what you should and shouldn't write about and what college admissions officers are looking at. So it wasn't like super formal, but it was something that was interesting. 
Sure. I think that's a resource that anybody could turn to these days. They talked to us about how to apply for college, but it wasn't like there was a resource through my high school that we could use. I also checked YouTube and researched and really just looked into the best way to fill out your application. How did you make the most of touring a campus as a blind student? So I know we have a lot of students who understand that tours are important, but they're like, what am I going to get out of this as a blind student? So if you did tour your campus, how did you make the most of that experience? I'm going to assume none of you toured your campus. Did either any of you campus? I, I did not. I didn't so, either. So, I mean, I was just going to say that I wanted to tour my campuses, but because I kind of already had a really solid idea of where I was going to go, uh, my parents didn't see the need for me to do that. Sure. Yeah, I could actually jump in with a tour question as well myself, because I also had a solid understanding of where I wanted to go. And while I had plans to tour other campuses as just an exploration type thing, I did tour the campus I'm actually attending, St. Louis University, and I was able to reach out to the tour coordinator at the admissions office and make sure that I'm given more verbal descriptions since since you're with a group already. Um, Your parents are a really good resource too if they're with you, but if not, I think You just have to just stand up and advocate for yourself. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a GPS app. If you're familiar with something like Nearby Explorer, near Blind Square, have that open just to see if you could get your grounds somewhat familiar, even though you may be walking with a group in a very new and unfamiliar situations. I was just going to say some schools have like an admit weekend for prospective freshmen. That's what Stanford did. And so you kind of, you stay with some upperclassmen and then you tour and you do fun activities with them. And I wanted to go to that, but there was not an observable need for my parents. But if that's the case, then, because I always think it's better to not necessarily have your parents with you if you're going to be hanging out with other students. But if that's the case, then you just tell the other students, hey, if you could just describe things for me, that would be great. Because these other students are already committed to being room hosts for you. And so at that point, they should be, you know, they should find it exciting to to show people I guess, the works. Right. Welcome you into their community, if you will. I actually, I had an orientation mobility instructor that helped orient me to the campus. And so that was actually more of a resource for me versus a tour, because we were able to go more in depth and one-on-one and find the landmarks and figure out where everything was versus a, a group tour. And I definitely think that there are benefits to having a group tour or attending a group tour, but that isn't something that I did. So I actually have a totally different perspective on this. I worked from my freshman year up until my junior year, which is what I just started, giving tours for prospective students, which was super interesting. I was very lucky. I go to a really small school. So when I requested a tour and my parents wanted to see the campus as well, they actually found one legally blind student who was close to graduating, who was like the only other blind student, I guess you could say, who had ever gone here, and they had her give me a tour. I will say it was a lot different because she didn't use a cane or anything like that, and so it wasn't, we didn't have the same orientation mobility kind of concerns, but it definitely was nice that they tried to match me with someone who they thought would get my perspective, but I definitely had to kind of learn the campus very well for my job, so I kind of got to experience both sides of the tour process. I think that for sure brings a unique experience as well, especially when you're working with O&M instructors one-on-one. I think oftentimes you get to swing by, for example, one residence hall or one type of classroom setting, whereas your schedule, when you map out your schedule 
in terms of what goes with your major and what classes you'll need to take in maybe a completely different environment. So I think all those are really great type of perspective, especially since everybody seems to have different experiences with this one. How was housing process for all of you when you made that decision? I'm sure many of you already have experienced lived on campus or still living on campus. How was that really in terms of this is really a huge overarching question in terms of how much you want to share, but setting up housing accommodations, if any, or if you're with a guide dog, I think that's also a very unique perspective as well. I was on campus for the majority of school. I do not have a guide dog now. She retired before I came to school. That's a really awkward way of phrasing, excuse me. So she retired shortly before I started freshman year, sort of. And I didn't really need too many housing accommodations, although I did ask to be on the first floor because I thought that that would just be easier. I was given a single actually because they assumed that I needed one. And uh, it was nice because I had a huge room, but shortly after fall quarter ended, I wanted to have someone in there because that can be a little isolating. So I asked one of my friends whose roommate had left during fall quarter uh, if she wouldn't mind just staying with me. So for me, I actually just moved onto campus less than a week ago. And I think the one thing that I'm get, still getting familiar with, and I think this is probably just going to be a key thing, is my campus is really large. But understanding and knowing that like getting lost is productive. So I've spent like many, many hours over the last couple of days just being lost. Like I know it's been frustrating. But Me I'm also too, Logan. To I got lost way too many times. <laughs> And, and it's so frustrating, especially because I moved in while school was starting. So it's like, I should be doing schoolwork or, or whatnot right now. Oh. But when I've kind of switched my perspective to like, honestly, it's kind of not necessarily fun to get lost, but like make an adventure out of it. Sure. Like, it's, it's rewarding when you find out where you're going eventually. Yeah. But yeah, don't take it like, oh, too seriously. It. Yeah. yeah, Things will work out. I actually still live with my parents, but it has definitely been interesting trying to get to and from campus, having oh, to get rides and all yeah, that stuff. Do you have any tips for that? That's actually a really good perspective. Segue. Do you have any tips for commuter students? Yes. So I actually have several on this one. I've had multiple different ways of commuting. When I first started, I was using Lyft or this ride service for disabilities. And at times that could be very unreliable and you end up getting in the car with strangers. And I think that if that is your only option, that's great. But I would say schedule your rides at least 30 minutes ahead of time. Make sure they get there early so that you have time to get to class. And then when you get in your ride, make sure to text someone and let them know that you're where you're going, who you're in the car with, that kind of thing as far as safety. But then if you have the ability to get like a family member or a friend or maybe someone that's in your same class to give you a ride, I've actually paid people to come pick me up and then drop me off. And that has actually worked really well this semester. How do you recommend for students to feel like they're still involved on campus if they're a commuter student? Hmm, that's a really good question. It's a little bit different for me because my community college, actually most people are commuters. So there are very few students that actually do live on campus. But I would say if you are a commuter student, it's really important to just pick something that you know you can go to, like go to at least one event or at least one club a week. And so that way you at least feel like you're actually on campus. Go like meet people, go be intentional 
about making it to campus because even though you may not be involved on campus or even though you have to commute to campus you can still be involved in the environment is that what you're going at no yeah that's a really good point I just thought it was super cool to kind of get that perspective because I know my school is like 70% commuter as well and so I personally live on campus but I know some blind students say they don't feel integrated to campus even when they live on campus so I was really curious yeah it's hard it's hard because you want to be involved but that getting to and from can be very difficult, especially if I've had rides that have been very unreliable and I'd show up an hour late to class. So if you feel like you don't really have a good, reliable way of transportation, it can be really stressful. Which is why, so for context, I um, go to school like 30 minutes away from where my parents live, but I opted to get scholarships and live on campus for that exact reason, because especially with northern winter weather, I wasn't sure if I would be able to have really um, good transportation all the time, Uh, especially like I know for those of us who take like 18 credits and stuff, you have a lot of class hours that you're putting in. And so that's really interesting you brought that up because that was actually my main um, driving force behind why I decided as a freshman to live on campus. Yeah. So I just have a tip for if you are living on campus and it's not necessarily getting involved in a formal way, but it's about feeling connected, especially in current times, it can be really difficult with some of the restrictions that colleges have in place. But honestly, just say hi to as many people as you possibly can and try and strike up conversations because most likely the other people, especially at the beginning of the year, are just trying to find connections too. So everyone's in the same boat. So it's a really great opportunity to try and meet people and make friends just spontaneously too. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and if you have a classmate who lives in your dorm, then you can ask if, you know, you can walk to class with them. Obviously, it's not necessary if you really like being super independent all the time, but I think it's nice because then you get to know people. Yeah, and then, like, from that one connection, you'll start to, they'll start to be like, oh, hey, meet this friend or meet that friend, and you end up walking together to class, and they stop different people, and then you get involved with their people. It's, it's, you can really branch off as far as social interactions by doing that. I think though, I think though when you're doing that, that it's important to just tell people, Hey, I just want to walk to class with you. I'd like to get to know you. And then, you know, there might be a point where they think that they're like walking the blind kid to class, but just tell them at at some point, if that comes up, you just say, I'm totally capable of walking. I just think it's nice to be with someone, uh, you know, and to get to know you. And then you end up getting coffee with them and it's a nice experience and you never know. Maybe you end up dating them in the future. I think that's a really good perspective as well. And I think for me, one of the biggest connection, if you will, was if your school offers this for your residential community. Uh, My school called this a learning community where you'll be housed with other students who are interested in similar topic or interests. So for mine, it was my learning community was called um, Leadership for Social Change. So that brought a bunch of students in the same floor. And I think, and especially where no one knows each other, I think that brings a really good connection because you are housed with other students, both male and female, on the same floor. And that alone, and you also get to take classes with them. So I think that's one way to branch out without you putting too much work because you are already part of technically a group or community with other students that live with you. And I think that's a different type of experience. And for me, not that I necessarily got extremely close with anybody 
on my floor, it gives you an opportunity to like still know them as friends and get in touch. It's just still to this day, and I think that's been really helpful for me. And I, I consider myself a introvert, so I don't really, I wouldn't go around and I don't feel comfortable like starting a conversation initially. But once you start talking to me, then I could really have that conversation. But I think that's also a good way to get to know people on campus. I'm in a living learning community on my campus as well, and I would 100% agree. It at least gives you a starting point of commonality to explore. For sure. Do you have any tips for students who have to participate in college interviews? I did not have to participate in an interview, thankfully, because I am not fun <laughs> during interviews. But I think that it's just important to try to highlight an aspect of your identity that wasn't in the application. The point of an interview is for them to get to know you better. You're going to be interviewed by either someone from the college, but most likely someone who graduated from there. So just take some time to maybe meditate or something beforehand so you're a little bit calmer. I think that it, obviously it's important to be in a quiet place so you're not introducing them to your mom yelling at you to fold your underwear or something. But yeah, try to just talk about a piece of you that wasn't on the application because I think that at least when I'm doing podcast interviews, for me, it's more of like having a conversation where I get to know the person as much as they get to know me. So they're going to ask you questions, but try to answer them in a way to where you get to direct the conversation a little bit, um, just as much as they're directing the conversation. So I didn't do any college interviews, but I did do scholarship interviews and kind of along the lines of taking, taking time to meditate beforehand. Like when you know it's about five minutes before they're going to call you or you need to call them, just take a minute, breathe, and then go in and just be friendly and treat it more as a conversation because every interview I've been in, it hasn't been like a one-sided, like, oh, they're grilling you for information. Like they're a person too. They just probably want to have a conversation with you, kind of get to know you, build a connection with you. So if you go in with that expectation or knowledge, that can really help. And then just be prepared beforehand. You've you've obviously at this point gone through your application and written your application, but also just think, as Cricket said, things that you haven't brought up or even things that you did put in your application, but maybe a different spin on them or a different way of showcasing yourself. And if you have an idea of what you want to say during the interview, that can really go a long way towards calming your nerves beforehand and you don't have to think on your feet as much during the actual interview. Yeah, I've never experienced that as well either, but um, I really agree with everything that has been said. Of course, if you're doing a video interview, I highly recommend dressing up. You know, they always say to dress up for job interviews. And I think part of that is so that they can see that you take the interview seriously. But honestly, a lot of times for me, dressing up for an interview or like an acapella audition or something is really just for me to get into that state of mind of like, okay, I'm doing this, I wanna do this, I'm here for a reason, and I just want to show off a little part of myself that I hopefully kind of know by now. This is going to sound kind of like a little explanatory, but how did you guys handle the stress of applying to college, uh, whether it be the financial stress or just the life stress that comes with such a major change or maybe not feeling sure about what you actually want? So as far as the financial stress, I would highly recommend doing as much research as you possibly can about resources that exist for blind students in your state or scholarships specifically for blind students, because there really are 
a lot of great options to get scholarships and to get state funding. So for instance, um, all University of Minnesota campuses have a tuition waiver for um, legally blind students. And that's something that wasn't really brought up to me. It's something that I had to find. So that's definitely one piece of advice. And then as far as life stress, you're, you're going to feel overwhelmed. And I think it's just important to understand that everyone, it, it is a big transition and it is okay to feel overwhelmed and not to feel bad about being stressed out. No one transitions to college and doesn't feel stressed. So knowing that you're not alone in that process hopefully gives you a little bit of reassurance. So I would say that when I was in my senior year of high school, I made a commitment to find one scholarship every day. There weren't always blindness scholarships. There were just lots of different little things, even if it's like a $500 essay contest or a $50, I don't know, enter yourself into a raffle type of thing. I didn't end up applying everything, but it's a good way to relieve some of that stress. The other thing is set those boundaries because if you're stressing and worrying and doing little tiny parts of your college application every day, it's never going to be easy for you. And you're always going to be thinking, I need to do this. I need to do this. But senior year is also all about homework and stuff, unfortunately. So like I was in four AP classes and two choirs and a bunch of other stuff. So I never did any part of my college application when I was at school. It's just really important to get a routine going so that you're like, I'm going to spend an hour on my college application essays immediately after I get home before dinner. And then try not to work on it when you're doing your homework and try not to think about it too hard when you're doing your homework. Obviously, don't wake up in the middle of the night and start doing your college application, please. No one's going to like that. I think, again, just, you know, setting boundaries, setting some sort of routine, and also try not to let your family have too much of an influence on your college application. If they mention something that's really important about you that you want to talk about, then definitely do that. And if they look at your essays and notice like little grammar errors and things, then do that. But remember that in the end, your college application is about you. So if there's something that someone says that's not highlighting who you are, or some if someone says something that is a reflection of who they think you are, take it into account, but don't feel like you have to put that in your application. Obviously everyone has different familial situations and backgrounds, but I, for one, didn't really ever let my family read my short answers and my essays and such. And in my house, like, I was raised to be super independent. So, like, filling out paperwork and things have been something I've done for years and years and years. And so that wasn't really an expectation that, like, someone in my house was going to proof my essay. Um, same with schoolwork. Like, that's never really been a thing for me. And obviously, it was totally, like, I could have done that. But I'm just very stubborn. So I was I was never the type to be, like, I want everyone to look at my, my college applications because I was too nervous. And so I think like that's okay too if that's how you manage your stress by like only showing them to a really trusted friend or teacher or maybe one of your parents like don't feel like you have to display this part of yourself to the whole world because it is kind of a private journey sometimes for some people and it can be really stressful. I would add to what Nina said and I do have a little bit of a different perspective on this one because my parents have not attended college in the United States and that I immigrated to the United States less than 10 years ago. I didn't have necessarily support from them just because they are not familiar with college application process in the U.S. So a lot of that was my self-discovery just because I didn't have that type of choice. And I think that definitely brings an interesting perspective to the table because they did 
know the schools that are ranked at high value or are awarded different awards that you know one school is good at this and that they would have that type of decision um heavily actually but i didn't let that get in the way but i use that kind of as an influence and a motivating factor but when i worked on essays or paperwork as as nina said i was or i had to get comf- comfortable with filling out paperwork on my own because they're limited english proficiency but i think other than that really essays i had i think it's good to use other resources and other adults because more than likely if you're a blind student you'll have a tvi with you or an onm instructor with you and i think you could talk to them just because they know not only your blindness specific type of things but most likely they've they've been through through college applications themselves and i think i've used them as a huge resource i had them look at my essays or I had them just peek at my application, see everything looked good. And I think those are really good resources too. And if you feel mentally overwhelmed or stressed, find a friend or trusted family member that may not be your parents because I know things are a little dynamic depending on how your relationship with your parents are when it comes to college applications. But I think talking to a school counselor helps and like, just other teachers that you know really well. My AP psychology teacher my senior year was really beneficial for me. And I've talked to him about college applications while I had him write me a recommendation letter. So that was really a double-edged sword. But that was really That's beneficial. That's really true. Because I am looking into grad school, which is a whole other episode. But I have a specific professor who we always joke that, you know, she sits down with her favorite students and has the how to get into grad school PhD program conversation, right? And so we definitely have a lot of people who are willing to talk to you, especially people who maybe didn't have the support when they were in those life situations are usually more apt to give it to um, students after the fact, so. Yeah, all great things. Um, I was just gonna say like with my applications um, and scholarships, I definitely tried to find at least, you know, a few scholarships each week. Whether or not I I applied for them, that was a different story, but I definitely tried to find at least a few. And then when it come when it came to the stress of actually applying, I definitely realized that at the end of the day, I was applying to two colleges versus like so, several other people that were doing like you know, four or five different colleges or more. And so I realized like everyone is going through the same thing. Everyone is going through the stress that I am going through. And as long as I just tackle it chunk by chunk and really just put my mind to it, it'll end up working out. It'll be okay. And eventually I'm going to get into a good college. I think it's also important to mention that it is okay to receive a denial rejection letter. I think that's part of life, right? Because not everything we desire give you an outcome the way you want it. And I think um, of six schools I've applied, I, I actually received one denial letter. And I, I think it's important to realize that you've tried. You definitely put in an effort to submit your applications as much as they looked at your application. So I think not stressing out too much over denial is also very important because that's not your only option. There are many options for you to choose. There are over 8,000 schools just in the U.S. And I think not letting that down is really important. I actually got several denial letters as well. And I just, when you get one of those, it can be very 
difficult to handle and it can be very upsetting and you might feel like you don't want to keep applying, but it is actually a really good idea to reevaluate, figure out what they need, figure out where you may have shortcomings were in that application and really try to work hard to fix those and reapply. Like most of them want you to reapply, like fix whatever it is that you need to fix and then start again. Because just because you've got denied once doesn't mean you're going to keep getting denied. I think one final point that I would like to make is don't settle. You should always apply to your, we call them your dream schools, your reach schools, whatever you kind of term them. And obviously apply to schools maybe that are local or that make more financial sense. But never just settle. I know that if I could do one thing over, I would have applied to more schools. I only applied to a few. Um, And by a few, I mean like three or four, but two of them were local and two of them weren't. And I just didn't look beyond that. I didn't have anyone telling me to look beyond that. And I had a lot of people who wanted me to stay close. And so I'm happy with where I am. I'm super happy with how my educational journey has turned out so far. But I definitely think that if I were to give anyone advice, it'd be to not settle and to look at and to apply to as many schools as you want. Um, no matter how different they might be from one another. A lot of schools have tuition waivers for applications. I wish I had applied for some of those, but um, there is almost always a way to get that sponsored. There are various organizations um, probably in your community that'll sponsor one or two of those if you look hard enough or if you tell uh, your connections with those organizations. A lot of, especially community service groups, are willing to do that if you just talk to them. Applications are hard, and it's all—it's also a little stressful writing the same things about yourself over and over again. But just try to give every application a little bit of a different spin, just so that various groups of people get to know you a little better, and so that you're not boring yourself with the same stuff. Um, yeah, I think it's just really important to reach for those schools that you dream about. And even if you get a denial letter, that doesn't mean that you can't transfer. It's important to have hope. It's important to have an inspiration and a dream. And there's almost always a way to achieve those dreams. So just think about what you want to do. This is just one small piece, but a lot of applications require letters of recommendation. And I would just recommend reaching out as early as possible on those because honestly, some of the most stressful situations I was in in my college application journey was just stressing about getting those letters in on the deadline. So just like a small thing, like think think pretty early on who might be willing to write you a letter and reach out pretty early and follow up with them if necessary. And don't be afraid to assign your own deadlines. I actually really love that Logan brought that up. You know, if you know that these letters have to be in by, I don't know, December 1st or whatever it is for a lot of schools, you can ask for it from your professor and say, I need it by November 10th. Right. And like, there's nothing wrong with you giving them an earlier deadline so that you can organize your materials or even pick what letters you want. And if they are sending them to the schools directly, because some schools let them or they require people to do that, then there is a whole window of a couple weeks for, you know, scheduling problems or mail problems or whatever. And so I know I definitely did that a lot. But that being (laughs) said, I recommend giving them at least a month. Letters of recommendation take a while and whoever your teachers or professors are, it's going to take them a while because they have lessons to plan and sometimes they forget, unfortunately. Sometimes it's also like a lot of schools will require them to be sent directly to the schools. My teachers were 
very generous in giving me copies of their letters and I didn't actually read them until after the applications were submitted. I same. Yeah, my honestly, <laughs> I didn't even want to read them, but my mother was like, "Oh, you got letters." And I said, "Yeah." And she looked at one and she was like, "Either you're going to read this or I'm going to read it to you." And I was like, "Okay." So I read it <laughs> and it was very nice. But the other thing is when you're applying to scholarships, a lot of the big ones, the NFB scholarship program in particular will require two or three letters of recommendation. So I don't know if it's necessarily great to ask your teachers for them, but if you receive a recommendation that you want to use on those big scholarship applications, then definitely do that. I was just going to say that I always had to ask for my recommendation letters. And then also I had a teacher that would actually require on the first day of class, he'd say, okay, if you need recommendation letters, you need to tell me next week because chances are I'm not going to give them to you until a week before your deadline. We would have to ask. I would go through and ask all of my teachers, please give me recommendation letters. Please give me recommendation letters. And I'd give them a deadline and then they wouldn't give them back to me until maybe like the day before that deadline or a week before that deadline. And so, you know, just make sure that you're you're asking for them, but then also giving yourself time to go through and actually submit those and figure out which ones you want to give because... Not all teachers are the best at getting them to you on time. If it's a high school teacher, they're going to be writing a lot of letters. So if you can get your request in first, they're going to remember that. I was also just going to add that Laura and I had that experience as well. And I had a teacher who actually had recommendation letter forms that you filled out because he called a few hundred kids. Yes. (laughs) But what I was going to say is don't be afraid to use your past contacts and your past networks. Because chances are, if you just got a brand new teacher and it's like September or October, maybe they don't know you as well as say like your creative writing teacher from the year before. And if you're applying to like an English program, you know, that recommendation letter might hold weight. So kind of just think about relevancy and how well the person actually knows you. I would say that even applies to references as well. And I know that's kind of different, but like if you have an application or, you know, if it's for college or whatever, that's another thing that you can really ask for is if they ever ask for a reference, really use your resources. So I had a, like, one thing that I didn't bring up in the actual podcast, which is kind of interesting, is I had a really unique experience considering I homeschooled in high school. (gasps) Oh! I don't, I mean, I think the trickiest, the reason I brought up letters of recommendation is because that was definitely the hardest, the hardest part of it, considering I didn't have high school teachers. Right. So my, my letters of recommendation were like really heavy on activities that I was involved in, in high school. And I definitely was really stressing out about how I was supposed to format like my transcript and it was a time, but my my main strategy was just I took an obscene amount of standardized tests. Like I took like the ACT, obviously, but then I also took fourteen AP exams. Oh god! Oh dear! Oh no, god. thank you. Because like my my schooling consisted of like picking an AP exam and then like finding online videos, <laughs> no. and, like online textbooks, and like practice problems. Horrible. It was a time. Yeah. Wait, you say that too? Okay, I say that phrase all the time, and I've never heard anyone else say it until now. I'm always like, oh yeah, it was a time. It's a time. And everyone looks at me like I'm weird. Because like, <laughs> you secrets. are, but... I mean, yeah, but... <laughs> My automatic all default right. is like, oh, it's something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Now that we've covered all the aspects of applying to undergrad schools, it's time to talk about the scary part of college, paying for it. 
So joining us today to talk about financial aid is NAB Secretary Malsam Mehta. Okay, Malsam, so everyone says you're the queen of financial aid. Are you ready to let me pick your brain a little bit? Oh, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, so what different types of aid are there to choose from when you're looking into paying for college? So I first want to reiterate, um, paying for college is the scariest part, absolutely. But there are options out there. There are federal Pell Grants, there are scholarships, and there's also state government aid. So as you're doing your college search and you're looking through your options, you will not be disappointed by the lack of funding out there. Also, short plug, don't forget to check with your VR agency in your local state and also the National Federation of the Blind National and State Scholarships, which can be found at the various affiliate websites as well as nfb.org. So, Malsam, when do you recommend a student starts to apply for financial aid? So, FAFSA, which is the application for federal student aid, opens on October 1st. And from then on, you can start working through that application up until early spring, which is when most priority deadlines for most schools is kind of specified. Other than that, scholarships are available all throughout the year, and there are various websites that can help you match to certain scholarships, so always keep an eye out for those. Can you give a brief overview of the accessibility challenges and maybe some solutions that go along with those when it comes to filling out financial aid independently? Sure. So the entire process is pretty involved. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a lot, but I will say that in my experience, the forms are pretty accessible to navigate with a screen reader. The biggest trouble that naturally you end up running into is that tax documents are usually on paper. So you will have to ask for some visual assistance when you're transferring the numbers into your forms. Another thing you can do though, is you can use the data retrieval tool from the IRS that's specifically offered with the FAFSA form. And if your taxes were filed online, you can kind of upload all of your tax information directly into the form. But I would recommend that you do have somebody check and verify those numbers, especially if you do have the documents in print. Thank you so much, Mawson. Thank you to all our special guests who spoke with us today. I hope that you all found this episode really helpful and we can't wait to get back with you next month.